not achieve any of this on our own. There is nothing that we could do to make our way to heaven or to earn your favor, Lord, but accept Christ, the suffering, the offering that he was for us. We rely on you this morning. We are humbled that we have been chosen to live in this, this land. We're grateful for the freedoms. And Lord, help us to not take any of those for granted. We love you and we worship you together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Do you know how to tell when a Baptist church meets outside? The farthest shade fills up first. <laughs> Got to be a back row Baptist, whether we're inside or out, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, you know, I learned something on Thursday uh, when I had studied. I had my preaching outline ready, and, uh, and I gave it to Madeline, and she's like, oh, Chris preached Habakkuk like maybe last year. And we looked it up and that was absolutely true. And it was too late at that point to, uh, to change courses. And so we're going to take a look at Habakkuk again. We're going to revisit it on, on the anniversary, I guess, of its preaching last year. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. It's just a few small books back from Matthew, one of the minor prophets, so named for its size, not for its importance. And then I am going to uh, break my typical pattern uh, and, and not read the whole book to start. We will actually end up reading the whole book uh, throughout this message, or most of the book, I should say. Uh, but we're going to kind of unpack it piece by piece. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this wonderful little book. Well, Heavenly Father, we, um, we ask you again that you would define us and characterize us as a people defined by hope. That, uh, that our hope in Christ would be unwavering, that it would be objective hope, not subjective hope, or that rather that our subjective hope, the hope that we feel, would not come merely based upon feeling, but would come out of the objective reality of what Christ has done for us. And that because heaven is certain for those who have trusted Christ, because we can know what he has done for us and know on his merit that we are saved, we can have the, the feeling of hopefulness because of the security of the hope that we look to in the future. And Lord, as we navigate this life and this world, Lord, would that hope be evident in us? Lord, we pray this morning, uh, not just for us, but for Bethel Baptist and Milton Freewater, and we continue to pray for them as they're a church in transition. Father, we pray that, um, that you would bring their next pastor to them, that there would be uh, joy in, in his coming, Lord, that there would be uh, faithful preaching and, and service and love of one another in, in the meantime. Lord, we pray for uh, the Christian Aid Center this morning as well. Lord, we thank you that, um, that they've shared with us stories of, of new women coming into the, uh, the shelter from hard places. Lord, we thank you for the ministry that they, they have there. Lord, we know that uh, the gospel reaches into the hard places of our sin and calls us out of it. And so, Lord, may we be a people, not, not just them and not just through supporting them, but may we be a people for the, the last, the least, and the lost, that we would take the gospel and the light of your word into those hard places. Lord, we thank you for the report of a woman who gained full custody of her baby and how uh, that's been able to, uh, to happen in part because of their ministry. Lord, we ask with them that there would be 
uh, just peace among the, the residents and uh, among the staff, Lord. And we know that there's uh, sometimes drama among those who live there. And so we, we pray that you would uh, just give peace uh, in, in that place. Lord, we pray for uh, with we pray along with them as they're asking for prayer during this uh, this heat wave that we've had and for uh, for those who are out in it, maybe for those who are there. Lord, we think of uh, of many in in our communities, even very near to us who have who have died because uh, of of the heat, Lord. And so, um, Lord, may we be hospitable and, and have open homes and and air conditionings to those who who might need it. And uh, Lord, would you use Christian Aid Center in that way as well? Lord, we pray that you would incline their hearts and ours to you. Lord, we ask that uh, that each and every day your word would sound forth from us, not only in our ministries, but in our personal lives as well, that we would take the gospel out to the world, that we would uh, not fall victim to the temptation and the sin of, of hiding inside the church and, and not being concerned for the world around us. Lord, would you give us great uh, great concern for those around us who, who are lost and who need the gospel. Lord, give us open eyes and soft hearts to your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, I promise today's message is not a political message, but I do think we have to talk about the culture and the world that we live in. Because uh, I think many of us probably remember a time, even, even some uh, of younger of us, where cultural Christianity was the norm. Uh, if you go down to the south in the Bible Belt, it probably still is in many ways. But cultural Christianity is, is disappearing. It's, it's not in vogue to be uh, a Christian anymore. I know somebody who, uh, who was uh, at a church in Spokane and a local businessman, knowing that the church needed reparation, uh, needed repairs to the building, came to the church and said, I will fully fund the repairs of your church if you'll put me on the board. The guy was not a believer, but he understood that it was good for his business to be associated with the church. Those days are gone. Uh, people are dissociating with themse themselves with any church as fast as they can if they want business. Uh, cultural Christianity is gone. America has gone in one generation from a place favorable to Christianity to neutral to Christianity to now hostile towards Christianity. Our, our country no longer sees uh, religious freedom as a primary right that is given by God. One of the most influential law schools in the country is Harvard Law. The dean of Harvard Law wrote an article in the last couple of weeks referring how to, how, how, to, to the fact that, at least in his opinion, religious liberty is merely one liberty among many others. It's no longer the primary liberty in, many, in, in the schools that are teaching law. It is just one right among many. And there's a problem in the world when the state ceases to see that our religious liberty is a freedom and a right given by God because when they believe it's a right given simply by society, it becomes a right that can be taken away. Del Tackett, uh, in his series, The Truth uh, Project, which is excellent, he said this, he said, the king who forgets that he is under the authority of God quickly begins to see himself as God. And the king who sees himself as God quickly becomes the devil. Now, America, 
country we live in and love is a country that was founded on the principle of religious freedom. We were founded on the principle that religious freedom is our primary freedom. In its founding, the Church of England was a mess. And in order to understand the, that, you have to understand Henry VIII. And I'm not going to unpack his whole life, but uh, if, if you know anything about Henry VIII, he was a good Catholic. Uh, but, well, <laughs> he wasn't a good Catholic. He was a Catholic. And, and as a not good Catholic, he wanted multiple divorces from Catherine of Aragon and from others. And initially, the Catholic Church granted him some of the divorces that he desired. And then they stopped. They stopped issuing him the divorces from his wives that he wanted. And so uh, he broke off under the influence of some religious leaders in England in his day, uh, broke off from the Catholic Church and founded what we call or started what we call the Episcopal Church uh, or the Church of England. Now, his son, despite all of his failures, his son, Edward VI, was a faithful believing Protestant evangelical. And so under his son, Edward VI uh, reign, the church uh, became more, more, more Protestant, more evangelical, more distanced from the Catholic church. And on his deathbed, knowing that the person in line uh, for the throne was who we refer to today as Bloody Mary, he appointed shortly before his death a, a, a young girl who was about like sixth or seventh in the line of succession, her name was Lady Jane Grey, to be the Queen of England. And he did so because he wanted England to remain a Protestant and not a Roman Catholic nation. Well, uh, Lady Jane Grey was queen for nine days in England until uh, Bloody Mary removed her forcibly from the throne, locked her up, and eventually, uh, after quite a, a long time, executed her. And as we know, Bloody Mary returned the church in England to primarily being Catholic in its, Roman Catholic in its, in its orientation and doctrine and teaching. Well, that's the mess out of which America was founded. A church controlled by the government that, 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 uh, of the country and, and that swung back and forth and changed with its leaders. And so America was founded, uh, I mean, this church in, in England, it was rampant with simony, which is buying positions in the church. It was rampant with nepotism, which is just getting a position in the church because you were uh, a family member of somebody who was important. And America was founded on the hope that all people could worship freely without the control of the government. Now, why does that matter for us today? Because I think in that moment, in this nation's history, which is the very beginning moment of this nation's history, something, a, a temptation crept into the life of believers. And that temptation, I think, was to, to shift a portion of our hope from God to the state to the nation, to the country, to the government that we live in. And it maybe started small at first, but it was a hope divided between one's faith and one's politics. I think it's a hope that, that grew over time. And the, the church in America, throughout America's history, has, has begun to, to divide its faith more and more 
between its political climate or maybe even affiliation and between what God has done. Technology gave us another false hope. Vaccines, antibiotics, electricity, flight, transportation, communication, but all of it ended up disappointing us with two world wars, two atomic bombs, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf Wars, 9-11, much of which showed us that, that enemies don't even wear uniforms anymore. They might be dressed up as a pregnant woman. It might be a child with an AK-47. We've recently had two elections where just about everybody I've spoken to has felt like they were stuck choosing between the lesser of two evils. And I think all of this, in some ways, is a grace of God. Now, that might seem like a strange thing to say, but I, I think the story of, of God's uh, of working in the world, uh, I think the biblical story is a story of redemption and that God has an incredible ability to redeem even bad and hard things. But I think it's God's grace in that he's loosening the grip of his church on their hope in things that can only disappoint. Because when our hope is placed in anything other than God, we are set up for failure. Governments are a gift of God, but when we place our hope there, they disappoint. Churches are a gift of God, but when we place our hope there, they disappoint. Spouses, children, families, nationalities, all of it is uh, are good gifts from God, but none of them were meant to give us hope. And I think we're particularly in a climate in America where we can reshift our hope back to where it belongs in full measure. This does not mean we shouldn't be good citizens. It does not mean we shouldn't care about our government and the world that we live in. In fact, I think as we understand that government is a gift from God, read Romans chapter 13, we ought to see that Christians are the best citizens. But it does mean that our hope should rest wholly and fully on God. And that brings us to the book of Habakkuk. Now, little is known. In fact, nothing about Habakkuk is really known except what we see in this little uh, uh, prophet that bears his name. He appears nowhere else in scripture. Uh, we do know that he's likely the last prophet to Judah before the Babylonian captivity. Now, if you recall, uh, the, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel were divided into two kingdoms uh, at the end of Solomon's reign. The northern kingdom of Israel had Samaria as its capital, and the southern kingdom of Judah had Jerusalem as its capital. Now, Assyria had already come and hauled off into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and they attempted to, to haul Judah off into captivity as well. Hezekiah tried to bribe the king of Assyria not to conquer them. He stripped all the gold and silver out of the temple. He gathered every bit of wealth he could out of the nation and offered it to the king of Assyria to keep the, the Assyrians from attacking them. And the king wouldn't have it. He, he, he still decided he was going to conquer Judah. Well, God came uh, and overnight slaughtered a bunch of the, of the army of the Assyrians, so much so that they went home in defeat. And Judah managed to stave off captivity for a while, Hezekiah being a godly king, 
who led the nation back to, to, to the Lord. Uh, the, the, God left them there for a while. But it wasn't long before the kings became evil again. Uh, of the 20 kings after Solomon in the nation of uh, Israel, none of them were good. Of the 20 kings in Judah, only six were good. Uh, there was idolatry and, and all kinds of sin rampant in those nations. And so we know that Habakkuk is likely the last prophet to this nation of Judah before the Babylonians, here referred to in this book as the Chaldeans, would come and take them captive. Now, uh, the opening verses of this minor prophet show us that Habakkuk is distraught over sin. But he's not looking out upon the world at, at whole, as a whole and wondering why there's so much sin and why sin is so rampant in, that, in the world. He's looking particularly at the people of God. Read along with me as I, I read to you verses 1 through 4 of Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Yahweh, how long will I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contempt, contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let me ask you, what bothers you more? What unsettles you more? The sins of the church or the sins of the world? Do you presume, as Paul says in Romans 2, that you deserve God's forgiveness, that you deserve his kindness, whereas those out there don't? We should be bothered far more by our own sins and that we could can think of that personally. My sins should bother me more than yours. But we can also think of that in terms of the church. That, that the church's sins, particularly the sins of Trinity Baptist, should concern us more than the sins of the world. No sin should be more heinous to me than my own. Or to you than your own. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor back east early in America's founding. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, by the way, here's a, uh, an interesting note. Uh, 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 this, I think it's been removed, but about 30 years ago, uh, Encyclop Encyclopedia Britannica called Jonathan Edwards the smartest scholar that America has ever produced on any topic. Not just religion, on any topic. The man was a brilliant man. And at 18 years old, he penned uh, some resolutions. And, and every one of them started with the word resolved. And every week of his life, he reviewed these resolutions uh, of ways that he had, had determined, he had resolved that he was going to live. And one of my favorites says this. He said, resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing. So whatever he says and whatever he does, to act as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. So in seeing anyone else's sin, he was resolved to understand that nobody was worse than him and that he would imagine himself as having the same sins, 
not sitting in judgment over them for their sins, but understanding that he was capable of those same sins himself. And then he says this, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of confessing my own sins and misery to God. In other words, personally, he would see the sins of others as an opportunity to see his own sin, to confess his own sin, to see his own failings, to imagine that he had been the one who, who failed in those ways or sinned in those ways. Could you imagine a church that instead of looking at the world and said, oh, how awful those things are, looked at the world and said, oh, how wretched we are that we saw those, those sins and infirmities and failings as ours. I imagine it would result in a church that was a safer place for sinners to seek repentance. Not a safe place for sinners to sin. The church can never be that. But the church must be a safe place for sinners to seek repentance. And if we would stop looking at the world as far worse than us, and start seeing any sin as an opportunity to confess our own sins and misery to God, I think things would change greatly. When you see things in others, you should see yourself as capable of the same things. And it should be an opportunity to confess our own sin and misery to God. So I must be first concerned with my own sin more than any other. Second, with the sins of my fellow Christians. And only thirdly, with the sins of the world. But Habakkuk's concern for the sin of Judah leads him to ask two questions, to which God gives two answers, and then we see two responses from Habakkuk. So let's look at these fairly quickly. Question number one, and we've already read the verses, God, where are you? Lord, where are you in this? How long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Lord, there's violence and you're not saving. There's iniquity and you're not doing anything about it. There's destruction and violence and strife and contention. The law is paralyzed to convict sinners, to convict the guilty. Does this sound familiar to us? Justice goes forth perverted. I don't presume to know what justice is, but on one side of things, you have Bill Cosby who goes to jail and people cry justice. And then he's released from jail and people cry justice. If you have enough money and enough lawyers and enough whatever, you're likely to never be convicted of anything. Justice goes forth perverted. We live in a world where uh, the legislature or a country where, where the legislature that is designed to make laws is so afraid to make a law for fear of not getting reelected that they're leaving all of the legislating up to the Supreme Court which was never given to us as, as something that would legislate, but would interpret the law, particularly according to the Constitution. We live in this world, and I think it's easy for us as Christians to look out there at social agendas and abortion and injustice and say, Lord, how long, how long are you going to put up with that? Or maybe we see it in the church and we say, oh, Lord, how long will you put up with this? How long will we live in a world where you can kill babies and old people, but there's no death penalty for murderers? not advocating any of that. It's just, it's a point I don't, that I don't understand. How long will we live in a world where, where bakers can't bake cakes, but drag queens can have story hour at the library? 
How long, O Lord? We can feel Habakkuk's pain here. How long are you going to seem to let people go on? And God's answer is somewhat surprising. Starting in verse 5, God tells us that he is right in the middle of things. He's right in the middle of all of it. He hasn't turned a blind eye. He hasn't forgotten about his people. He, he hasn't decided that sin is now acceptable. No, he, he's right in the middle of it. And he says that he is raising up the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, to bring judgment on the nation of Judah. Look at what he says. Look among the nations and see, verse 5. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now imagine Habakkuk's response to that. This, this wicked, evil nation, far more wicked than Judah, and God, you're raising them up? You're raising up that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They take over countries. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep uh, by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose might is their own god. How, how is this possible, Lord? You're raising up this wicked nation, and that's your answer to the sin of my nation. Well, well I think God's answer is. Habakkuk, you see what's going on in the world around you. You see the injustice of it. You see the atrocity of it. You see the sinfulness of it. But I'm bringing judgment. And it's coming to Judah in the form of the Chaldeans. God is raising up people to bring judgment upon his people. Now, Romans 1 and 2 make it pretty clear that God is doing something different today. One of the things that, that really bothers me is when politicians or charlatans get on TV and say that when there's an earthquake or a hurricane, that it's God's judgment. That's a severe underestimation of God's judgment, for one. But for two, Romans 1 and 2 makes it clear that God is patiently enduring the sins of people, allowing them to incur judgment for themselves, but that his patience is meant to lead them to repentance. He lets people store up wrath for the day of wrath. He lets people store up judgment for the day of judgment. Patiently enduring everything that we see going on in the world. Knowing that he will bring all of it to account. There's something really, really important for us to understand as we think about that though. And that is that my sin and your sin is deserving of every bit as much wrath as the world's. Don't presume you deserve God's grace while others don't. The difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that we deserve grace and they deserve wrath. Grace can't be deserved. That's, uh, that's the very definition of grace is that it's undeserved. We deserve wrath. The only difference between Christians and non-Christians is the object of that wrath. That when we have trusted Christ 
for the forgiveness of our sins. He has borne God's wrath in our place. No less wrath due to us, just spent on someone else. Whereas the world around us is storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. And I think the only biblical response to that is not to be like Jonah and go climb up on a hill inside the church and sit and wait and watch for God's judgment, but to have deep compassion for what's going on in the world around us. We should have deep compassion for people who are storing up God's wrath because God's been compassionate upon us because he bore his wrath himself to take it away from us. The only difference between us and them is the object of wrath. When we trust Christ, that wrath that was due us has been paid by him. We must understand that we're all wicked, that our sins deserve judgment. Have you, have you trusted God? Have you trusted Christ to be the bearer of that wrath for you? And so the first question Habakkuk, Habakkuk asks is, how long are you going to put up with all this sin, Lord? And God's answer is, not much longer. I'm bringing some people in, and they're going to bring judgment. And we should have that same perspective. When we look around and we say, how long, O oh Lord? And he says, not much longer. My coming is going to be quick. And when I return, it will be with judgment. His, his first coming was in humility. His second coming will be in power. But I think it, Habakkuk's next question is the logical question raised from God's first answer, and that is, Lord, why are you using the wicked to judge your people? Why are you using the wicked, a, a nation more wicked than Judah, to judge your people? And God's answer is, yes, uh, the Judah is wicked. Yes, the Chaldeans are wicked but they're going to get judgment as well. Habakkuk's baffled. God, Judah's bad, but they're worse. I think a certain way to displease the Lord is to measure our holiness based upon the nation surrounding us. God's problem with Judah isn't their holiness in relation to the Chaldeans. God's problem with Judah is their relationship to holiness or, or their measure of holiness and compared to him. Be holy as I am holy is the command. If the church looks out at the world and says, well, we're just keeping our distance. That's, that's good enough. At least we're not like them. God's quickly going to become frustrated with us and he'll bring judgment in the form of discipline not in the form of wrath upon his church as well. And so, so the question comes, why is it, Lord, that you're using this nation to judge us? That, that he uses this fishing analogy that, that casts its net out and scoops up nations like a fish and then worships the net. Well, remember what Del Tackett said, the king who forgets that he is under the authority of God quickly begins to see himself as God. And the king who sees himself as God quickly becomes the devil. I think there are times and ways and places in which God still uses the, the world to judge the church. Sometimes it looks like the world's winning. Persecution, lawsuits, COVID regulations, 
all of it has been damaging to the church. And all of it has been, God uses to be good for the church as well. And when it looks like the world is winning, we have to remember that God is in control. And again, it should move us to compassion. We look around this world and we go, this place is broken and, and things aren't working right. We have grave concern over what we see going on around us. We should always remember that this life is as close to heaven as the non-believer will ever get. But for us who have believed, it's as close to hell as we'll ever get. I think God, by the way, I think God intentionally lets life be hard for believers. The Psalms wrestles with this all over the place. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? And, and, but your people are persecuted. We don't even understand how good we have it. People die for being Christians in other places. That day may be coming here too. But, but how is it that the world prospers more than God's people? I think it's a grace of God. Because I think what God does is he, is he allows life to be hard for us. He allows trials. He allows difficulties. All for the purpose of keeping us from clinging too tightly to hope and things that can only disappoint. When life is hard, it should be the constant reminder of the goodness of what's to come. That our home is not here. That we're strangers and aliens in this place. Do you see yourself? If I were to ask you, what is your citizenship? Is the first thing that comes to mind American or heaven? Because we're not American citizens. If there were such a thing, it'd be our secondary citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are strangers and aliens, not just in this land and in this country, but in this world that is not our home. Lord, how? How, though? How can you uh, allow this people more wicked than us to, to judge us? Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Yahweh, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? How can you use these people in this way, Lord? How could we see in the world around us with everything that's going wrong that you're using that? And then he says, uh, he, he, Isaac, or Habakkuk, rather, is going to wait for a response. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concern, concerning my complaint. And so the answer comes. First question, how long, O Lord, are you going to put up with sin? First answer, not much longer. Judgment is coming. Lord, why are you using evil people to bring judgment? Answer 2 justice will be had even on them. Verse 2, And Yahweh answered me, Write the vision, 
Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The time is coming, Habakkuk, when everything will, will be set right. And if you think it's coming slowly, it's not. It's coming at a, its perfect time. God is not slow as some count slowness. He's always right on time. And you think that there's a delay in justice because the Chaldeans are coming in to bring judgment, but that's not the way it is, Habakkuk. My judgment comes perfectly. Behold, verse 4, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. We don't put our faith in the world. We don't put our faith in circumstances. Habakkuk's about to lose his country. He's about to, he knows that the Chaldeans are coming and they're going to sweep up Judah like a net. The just don't live by their citizenship or in connection to this earth. The just live by faith. And then starting in verse six, we see these woes, these, these cursings begin to be pronounced against the Chaldeans. Verse six, woe to him who heats up what is not his own. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Yes, Habakkuk, I understand that you're troubled by the fact that I'm using people more wicked than you, but but justice will be had. And, And it's the same for us. Justice will be had. And we shouldn't think that the Lord is slow or that he delays or that his timing is poor. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But look what Peter expects again, be our response to this slowness, this slowness to judgment. The Lord is not slow, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God isn't slow or late. He's always right on time. Why is he delaying? Why does he allow for what's going on in the world? Because he's patient. He is patiently enduring the wickedness of people in kindness that his kindness might lead them to repentance, that they should not perish. Is that our perspective? Is that our heart? Are we more like Jonah sitting on the hill waiting for the destruction of the wicked? Or are we more like God compassionately caring about them? Patiently enduring that they might repent. The book of Revelation, which Thursday mornings the men's group is going through. You guys should show up. It's a pretty good time. Um, But we're going through the book of Revelation. I think the book of Revelation was given to encourage us no matter what we see going on around us. Because the main theme of the book of Revelation is God wins. But it was given to encourage saints and terrify sinners. Because God's justice is coming on the wicked and his grace is coming on the redeemed. The world isn't against us. I mean, the world is against us, but it's against us because it's against God. And the world is far more evil than the church. But in the end, justice will be had. God will bring every nation and every person into account. And so what do we do then when we see the wickedness in the world and and when we see that the wicked world seems to prosper around us? 
when God's judgment feels delayed, when we're not sure what he's doing, but we know he's doing something, well, Habakkuk's two responses give us a pretty good idea. The first is pray for God's justice and mercy. Pray for God's justice and mercy. Notice that's Habakkuk's response. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigia note or something like that. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now that verse sets the tone for the rest of Habakkuk's prayer. And none of it has anything to do with his circumstances. He's about to recount two things. The nature of God, O Lord, I have heard of you. O Lord, I have heard of who you are and your work. Lord, I've heard you have told me who you are and you have told me what you do. And we should pray that we and all those around us would see that who would see who God is and what he does. It's that that Habakkuk puts his hope in. His hope is not in his circumstances. His hope is not in his nationality. His hope is not in his citizenship. His hope is in the character and work of God. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. and The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his own arrows, the heads of his war- you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I will quietly wait for you to set everything right, he says. Prayer is the first response to seeing injustice and wickedness in the world, to the seeming delay of God. I was so encouraged by 38 people coming to corporate prayer this last week and and have hearing more who would love to attend. When we don't understand what God is doing, we pray and we trust his goodness. We remind ourselves that God doesn't try and accomplish his purposes in the world. He declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. We pray knowing that even when we don't understand, God does. He has declared the end of all things and he is good and knows what he's doing. And secondly, in this prayer of Habakkuk, we see that Habakkuk's first response is not just to pray when we don't understand the things going on around us, but to find our hope in God and not in our nationality. God wasn't going to save the nation of Judah just because of the nation that they were. God, uh, God is calling Habakkuk to place his hope in God. His hope lied in the character and work of God. His hope wasn't in the ease of his circumstances. His hope wasn't in his national identity, even though he was part of God's chosen nation. I've got news for Americans. It is not God's chosen nation. Only Israel gets that title. And I think Romans is pretty clear that Israel still bears that title and is awaiting a time when, when God will return them to himself. But Habakkuk, know, Habakkuk knows bad things are coming, yet he rejoices in God. Look at what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, that's circumstances. Even if I don't have food and fruit is not on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. If the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. If I've got no money and no provision and my circumstances are as bad as they could possibly be, Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. How in the world, Habakkuk, can you see empty bank accounts, empty cupboards, national destruction, slavery and captivity as having your feet on high places? Because the Lord was his high place. And nobody could take that away from him. It didn't matter if the Chaldeans swept him away. It didn't matter if he had something to eat or didn't eat. It didn't matter what his nationality was. The Lord was his high place. And therefore, as long as Habakkuk's hope was in the Lord, his feet would be set on high places. His hope was in the Lord, not in his nation. His hope was in the Lord, not in his circumstances. Now, let me be clear. Our nation is worth celebrating. Different ethnicities and cultures are worth celebrating. I'm merely saying that God didn't ever give them to us to supply us with hope. He gave us himself to supply us with hope. We weren't made to find our hope in our national identity or our church identity or any other identity but Christ. Al Mohler said, Christians must adapt to the changed cultural circumstances by finding a way to live faithfully in a world in which we're going to be a moral exception. How do we find a way to live faithfully in a world where we're going to be the moral exception? We put our hope in God, not government. We put our hope in Christ, not in money or social status or ethnicity or gender or bank accounts, put our hope in God. I've made it a habit to underline in purple every place in the Psalms 
where, where the psalmist describes what God is. Not what he does, but what God is. And the vast majority of what I see there is that God is a refuge, an ever-present help, a safe place in times of trouble. Our safety, our life, our hope, it's not in this world. It was never meant to be. It's in the one who came and became part of our world to die in our place, to bear the wrath that we deserve, to make us citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that cannot be taken, a kingdom whose hope cannot disappoint, a kingdom that never delays, never fails, and never gets it wrong. And that is where our citizenship lies. Lord, help us to understand today that while we, we can celebrate government as a good gift from you, that we can celebrate the freedom that you have given us, our hope is in you. Our citizenship is in heaven. That if we have trusted Christ and have been freed from your wrath and judgment because he took that in our place, that we belong first and foremost to the kingdom of light and that it will not disappoint. Lord, give us compassionate hearts. Let us not sit in judgment of the world around us. You have already judged sin. But we're not saying it's, it's okay what's happening around us but we know that your kindness and your patience is merciful and is meant to lead people to repentance. But let us see the failings of others as opportunities to confess our own sin and misery to you, to see that we're capable of everything, to understand that there is no sinner so vile as I. And move us out into the world, a world that needs you with compassion. Lord, let us see that the only primary and greatest tool you have given to us to conform any culture around us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the power of salvation to all who believe. Make us bold witnesses to the truth for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. No, no, you're gonna just stand yeah, behind just it. Stand. Just go stand behind it. Just, just go stand oh. behind it. I got a PE teacher voice. Can everybody hear me? <laughs> um, for a group of uh, strangers in this world, we have a lot to be thankful for on this day. So, um, Amen. Wow. It's, I, it's, uh, it makes my heart thankful to be able to meet with you all on a day like this. Um, John chapter 21. 1 through 3. Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of thunder, and two other disciples were all together. And Peter says, hey brothers, I'm in need of your fellowship and a good burger. Let's go down to the lake and barbecue. <laughs> they replied, great idea, Peter. We're down with that. Grab your floaties, boys. Um, so that's a little paraphrase right there. But in an effort to follow his disciples' examples, men, I'd like to invite you this Saturday. We're going to meet here at the church at 8 a.m. We're going to carpool up to Lions Ferry, and we're going to put some boats in the water, 
and some burgers on the grill. So uh, if you're interested, please register so we know who and how many. Um, other details 